our uh, conference, the Reverend Nedward Barubi, who, uh, otherwise known as El Presidente. Do you got the sauce? Did you bring the? He's got the sauce. For even a small donation, you'll you'll bless the ARC and you'll get barbecue sauce with Ned's face on it. It just really doesn't get better than this. All right. I have known Ned since I came to the city here. Uh, we connected probably at least 20 years ago and uh, became fast friends. We've been praying together almost every week when one of us is not traveling, but I mean, continuous, just whatever, every week for 18 years. When you pray with somebody every week, week in and week out, you get to know their heart. I know the heart of this man. Um, he's been a great blessing here at Bethel. We've done a lot of partnership things together. Um, he is one of my dearest friends, truly. And, um, and it's really an honor. And I love, I told you this at the beginning of the conference, and it's really true. I will sit under this man's teaching for days and not grow weary because of the word of the Lord that's in him. I'm going to one last time bring the scripture that I began the conference with and shared with yesterday morning and I share again today. First Thessalonians 1, 4 and 5. For we know, friends, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. So again, this morning, we're not simply looking for gospel that's coming with simply words, but with power, with the Holy Spirit, with deep conviction. Would you open your heart, and would you help me to welcome my friend, Ned? Okay, great. Glad to be with you this morning. Um, this is so shamelessly self-promoting, but um, let me explain this barbecue sauce before I go any further. Um, <laughs> I, this is part of the wait. It's, it's all happening right here. But um, <clears throat> Sue and I were just out in Denver, Colorado last week, and we were asked to speak at the staff retreat for uh, our church in Denver, which is called the Scum of the Earth. That's settled on you for a bit, you know. Um, and it's, uh, it's from 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul says, we are like the scum of the earth and the offscouring of the world. And when they chose their name, Mike Sayers, the pastor, said, you can choose your own name. And they came back with that name, the scum of the earth. And he said, um, you know, really, ah, it's not really a church name. You know, and uh, they said, you said we could choose the name. And he said, okay, you know, well, now it's the coolest name in, in, of ever. You know, it's the scum of the earth. Anyhow, um, th they reached out to the Pierce Tattoo Homeless Skateboard Crowd of Denver. And it's an amazing church. And they have an amazing staff. But they all raised their own funds. And so the scum of the earth has no funds to really give to the ARC. So, that, so what they did is they made a barbecue sauce. And they, 
And on the, on the front of the barbecue sauce is my picture and the picture of the founder, Ray Nethery. So there's been two presidents of the ARC. And there we are. It's called El Presidente Barbecue Sauce. And it's really good. <laughs> I mean, this is the best barbecue sauce that really you want to get one. And uh, anyhow, there's uh, Claire. Where's Claire? Claire's back there. She's got the barbecue sauce. You can have it for nothing. Or you can have it, if you want to give five bucks, we'll take it. Uh, but basically, it'll go to the scum of the earth, and it'll be part of their donation. But um, here you go, Jim. You get the first one. So, <laughs> Don't say, I never gave you anything. All right, and I want no more jokes about this either. That's it, you know. That's all. <laughs> I am um, glad to be here this morning. Let me see if this works. Does it work? Oh, look at that. It works. Does it go back? It does. Uh, I believe that these five ministry gifts that we've been talking about, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, are utterly crucial for the impartation of life and equipping for the church. I think if we don't get these things right, we all suffer. The church suffers. The mission suffers. And so I, I appreciate the fact that Jim has done this, and I appreciate the fact that these, the gifts that I see here are the real. I mean, because I've seen the not real. Uh, I've seen the not real apostles and the not real prophets and the not real pastors. I've seen them all. I just am glad that these are these are real gifts that are here among us. I deeply appreciate that. The, um, we need these five gifts because in the various seasons of church life, um, different voices need to be heard and heeded. Uh, and, and so I don't think that we constantly need the apostolic voice all the time present every day, but it better come in periodically. Same with the prophetic voice. I loved what Jim did yesterday with the, as a pastor speaking about evangelism. I told him it was the best thing I've ever heard from a pastor about evangelism. Um, but, but part of it, periodically, you do need a, a real evangelist coming in and imparting something to the congregation that moves the congregation out so that you don't become so profoundly ingrown, which is exactly where we get to if we only have the pastor-teacher typically doing it, unless the pastor really is oriented, like Jim, toward outreach. So we need all five gifts. Otherwise, why would it say that? Why would Paul say that to the Ephesians, that these five gifts equip the saints for the work of the ministry until the body of Christ is built up to mature? Why would he say that? He says that because it's true. It's those five gifts that are needed to actually build up the body and equip it. So if we don't receive those gifts, we will typically... Uh, drift toward, I would call it, distortion and dysfunction. It's going to happen. I mean, we are already headed that way just by breathing air, toward distortion and dysfunction. I, I, I like to put it this way, that every leader is a combination of giftedness and dysfunction. Why are you laughing, Julie? That's <laughs> it's true, isn't it? Every leadership team is a combination of giftedness and dysfunction. Uh, every church is a combination of giftedness and dysfunction. Every marriage, you know, 
I don't care how you put it, we are a combination of giftedness and dysfunction. The, the, the issue becomes proportion. The, what proportion is there of giftedness and dysfunction? But, um, but think about that, because, because if you don't think that way, then you, you'll, be, you'll fall prey to a, a, the deception that I'm always hearing the voice of the Lord, that I'm, that I'm always getting the, the mind of the Lord. You're not. Let me say that. We're not. I want you to say that. We're not. <laughs> I'm telling you the truth. The, um, that combination uh, is just present with us all the time. Now, I am to bring to you the weight of the teaching voice. And I just, uh, before we actually get deeply into it, I want you to think about David in Psalm 138. And he says this. He says this about God. You have exalted above all things your name and your word. I want you to think about that. Because David's right on, isn't he? When he says that you've exalted above all things your name, what's he talking about? He's talking about a covenantal understanding of who God is. His name speaks of more than just a a set of letters, God. His name is who he is in his person, who he is covenantally, who he is. And so whenever you hear the name in the scriptures, it's always speaking about covenant. It's always speaking about the fact that, so, so that when we pray in the name of Jesus, that's a covenantal understanding that it is as if Jesus himself has prayed that prayer. When we pray in the name, that's, that's what happens in a covenantal understanding. So that if I and Justin entered into covenant biblically, one of the things that would happen is my name would become Ned, how do you say your last name? Diaquili Barubi. And he would get Justin Barubi Biaquili. Maybe we should find other partners for this. It's like there's too many B's in that, right? I would get his name. And his name would become my name. And, and that then becomes... So, so when you think about praying in the name of Jesus, it's way more than in Jesus' name at the end of a prayer. It, that, that carries weight. It carries covenantal weight. And in fact... What David says is, you've exalted above all things your name, who you are, in every part of your being, and your word, and your word is what proceeds out from that person that is creative, and it, and it expresses something, and it does something. So his name, and, and David gets it right, you've exalted above all things your name, which is his personal worth and covenantal weight, and your word, the expressions out of that name that you can count on. So when God speaks, he speaks creatively, he speaks profoundly, he speaks eternally, and these are the things that you can count on. Peter says it in his second epistle, that we participate in the divine nature through the promises of God. That, that that's how you enter in to the divine, that's how you enter into relationship with God. You believe promises that he's made and it shapes you, and it changes you, and it does something to you, and you enter into relationship in that way. So, so David gets it right. You, he is exalted above everything. Think about everything. Above every other thing is the name of God and the word of God. 
everything under it, those two is measured by it, whether it's valuable or worthless, depends upon how it relates to that name and that word. Jesus says it this way. What did I do? Oh, I went the wrong way. I'm sorry. I go this way. There we go. Jesus says it this way. Let me bring you into the context of this scene. <laughs> you talk about out of the box. Yeah, right. Jesus says at one point to Pharisees, he says to, or anybody who's listening, even to his own disciples, he says that unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And people are just kind of, what did he say? Well, he, but he presses it further. He says, my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. And, and people are just, I mean, the coordinates in their mind are just splitting apart. And they finally say this. They finally say, disciples who had followed him to that point turn around and they leave. They say, that's it. That's it. We cannot follow that. That's ridiculous. You want me to, what? And, 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 here's, and here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, oh, no, 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 no. It was just a metaphor. He lets them leave. I mean, honestly, he lets them leave. Because the relationship he's wanting is not that you understand everything, but that you understand that this person who was saying it has got way more than you understand. It's the same way today. There are certain issues that you're not going to understand. And if you have to understand everything perfectly, you will not be able to follow Jesus. Read the Bible. I mean, so all through the Old Testament, people who followed God followed him without complete understanding, followed him with almost no understanding. I mean, it was 25 years before Abraham really saw a son come. 25 years of God promising in Genesis 12, that there was going to be, you're going to be the father of many nations. 25 years later, he's got nobody. And he continues. Why does he continue? Because he knows the person of God. There's something happening. And that word is calling him on. That word is not a mere statement. It's a creative, living word that engages the heart and moves you forward because you understand this is more than mere words. Jesus understands it here. The words that I have spoken to you, he says, are spirit and life. You're going to have to learn how to hear spirit, how to receive life. The words are more than words. The words are spirit and life. So, so Jesus presses that out with his own disciples, that, and, he, and he asks them, do you, do you also want to go away? And Peter gets it right. He says, where are we going to go? We don't understand what you just said about eating your flesh and drinking your blood. I don't get it. Why did you say that? Don't you want people to follow you? Well, he does on his terms. On his terms. Always on his terms. It'll be like that for the rest of your life. It'll be on his terms. And you'll have to learn that the words that he continues to speak are spirit and they're life. You have to hear it on that level. So, uh, 
one of the things just to, um, it's the same thing with preaching. Preaching has to be, it, it must get to this way that, that as we handle the word of God, we rightly divide it. That's what Paul was saying to Timothy. Rightly dividing it means not just getting all the commentaries right and all the exegesis right and all the Greek and Hebrew right. It means that you're getting to spirit and life and able to communicate that. You don't have to be a great communicator. You must get to spirit and life. This is what St. Augustine said in the 4th century. Everyone know Augustine? This guy was one cat. He, He said three things about preaching and teaching. In the Latin, he said, anybody know Latin here? Docere, delettere, and flectere. He said, in all teaching, you have to do three things. Docere, you must teach. You must unpack what's there. You, you must say what is being said. You must say it. Teach it. Unpack it. Delettere said, you must teach. He says, you also must delight. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting that he would say that, that, that in teaching you must, and what did he mean by that? He meant, undoubtedly, part of what he meant is, is how Jesus taught. Remember when people would, would hear Jesus, the common people, they would say, he doesn't teach like, like, like the lawyers. He, we understand what he's saying. That's delightful. But he would also use stories. He would use everything around him to teach. Everything was fair game in the teaching of Jesus. He, and it was simply people, they got it, they understood it. They were delighted by it. We need to teach that way. In such a way that we teach and unpack, but we also delight. And finally, he says, flectere, says you must influence. That you must teach with a mind to influence. You want people to change. You want them to move a certain way to teach, to delight, and to influence. This is, at the core, the teaching gift. Because if it doesn't get to these three things, people shut down, they turn off, they don't get it, they lose heart. You cannot, we cannot come to a pulpit with anything but a a proper fear of God to understand that these three things must happen every time. I must study to show myself approved to get to these places, to teach, to delight, and to influence. That's part of your prayer before you preach and teach. And it's not just preaching and teaching. It is counseling. It is for all of you interns. It's, it's whatever you're going to get into, this is for you too. That you have to think through, what does this mean for me to be a servant of God who understands that I handle the word of God? That's a fearsome thing, isn't it? that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually take what God said and try to make sense of it and try to pass it on. It's a fearsome thing. I, I remember as a young preacher just kind of going through this. Kind of, the first time I really got that and getting up and just and my throat went dry. And By the way, can I get a cup of water just as... <laughs> Speaking of dry throats. Anyhow, uh, brothers and sisters, this is our, our calling all the time. Uh, What Augustine said is absolutely true. So Jesus says, listen, he says, the words I speak are spirit and life. The flesh profits nothing. And it never will profit anything 
you'll have to get to spirit and life. OK. I want to take a walk with you back to resurrection day one. This is actually not the most famous uh, painting of the, um, on the road to Emmaus. You can turn to Luke 24 in your Bibles. And I want to take a walk with you on the same walk. This is back to resurrection day one, the first Easter Sunday. And I want you to imagine this. And um, oh, where's page two? There it is. The, what I want to do is try to elevate in your hearts and minds the weight of the word and the core purpose of the teaching voice. So I'm going to use some art through the ages to do that. But Luke 24 is one entire day, starting in the early morning when the women went to the tomb and they found the angels there and the angels spoke and they went back to the disciples and so forth and so on. Um, do, but do you remember when the women came back to the disciples and they reported what they had seen? Do you remember the response of the disciples? It seemed to them like an idle tale. This is interesting. Jesus has been saying for months, multiple times, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be scourged, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to rise on the third day. He's been saying it to them for months. And so when the women go... And they hear this from the angels, and they go back and tell the disciples, it seems like an idle tale. What does that say to you about the human heart? What does it say to you about in your own following of Jesus? It says that, well, we're problematic. We're dysfunctional. We don't get it. Even after three years with Jesus, they didn't get it after a legitimate report back from the tomb that the tomb is empty. They saw angels. He's gone, and the angel said, just like he said, remember? So the angel said, remember? No, they forgot. Everybody forgot. You ever forget? That's why we have to teach. Because your congregation forgets the gospel every week. That's why they need to hear it every Sunday. They need to hear the good news. Because do you ever forget? I forget multiple times a day. And, and I begin living out of myself rather than living out of Christ. I forget the gospel. The good news is that I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me and continues to love me and give himself for me. That's the right Greek there, by the way. It's, it's, it's a continuous tense. He continues to love me and give himself for me. So there's no point in the day where he's not loving me and giving himself for me. So to live by faith is not merely a propositional issue. It's a life issue. It's a receiving issue. I receive life day by day, situation by situation, conversation by conversation, dynamic by dynamic. I'm receiving. Faith is receiving that life from him, that, that, that love from him. It's receiving all day long. And the people need to hear that. need to hear it every day that, that that's the reality of how good this good news is. It's the best news they're going to hear all week. Say it plainly. Say it clearly. Say it delightfully. Say it influentially. But say it. 
teach the word in season and out of season, what Paul, what Paul says. So let me take you back to this first day. It says in, in Luke, Luke says in, in Luke, he says that um, what's going on here is that, uh, well, let me read it. Verse 13, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, I want you to hold this over here. Why incognito? I mean, I mean God's not doing something uh, willy-nilly, like it doesn't matter. He's doing something intentionally. He always does. He's doing it. So why? I want you to, don't, don't answer me, but we'll talk about it. Why does he do this in a hidden way? What's the point? There is a point. Why incognito? So here's what's happening. It's seven miles. Now, I, I, I've done a lot of running and walking. I don't know how to do this. But seven miles, if you were going to walk seven miles, how long do you think it would take? If, if, if you walked, you've got to watch me now. So if you walked at a 15 minute pace per mile, it would be like this. I guarantee you they were not walking that fast. That's a 15 minute pace is that. My guess is they were walking at a 30 minute pace or less. So, so here's, if they start from Jerusalem, and I'm guessing they, they are because Luke says it was seven miles, I'm guessing that, that this took easily between four and five hours to walk at this kind of a pace, four and five hours. Now, I want you to think about this. Because incognito was intentional by God, but so was this whole event. If you were in charge of the resurrection, <laughs> would you do this? The answer is, no, you would not have done this. Here's what I would have done if I were in charge. I would have taken advantage of that split curtain in the temple at, 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 at the point where Jesus says it's finished, and the curtain in the temple is split. I mean, what a freaked out moment that was for the people who came in the next day. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. And we're not even supposed to look in there, and it's wide open. It was a God act, wasn't it, in the temple. I would have taken advantage of that. And I would have Jesus raised from the dead and go into the temple stand in the holy place and say, ha, ha, ha. Come on. I mean, we could answer so many questions just to stand there and say, look at me. I beat you. I beat death. I beat Satan. Here I am. Come and touch me. It's all real. And the Holy of Holies is over now. We're not doing this anymore. We're not doing these sacrifices. The one sacrifice. I was like, oh. he didn't ask me about this. but So now, it doesn't happen that way. It's happening, this is day one. Day one of the resurrection, God chooses to do it this way. Listen, brothers and sisters, it's telling you something about who he is how he does things, 
how he moves. If we're always looking for that splashy victory, oh, forget it. It's not happening. We need to look for him in those hidden places. We need to look for him, excuse me, out of the box. In the places where you don't expect him, you have to be alert and ready. And that's why you need to read your Bible, because you need to understand how he works, why he does what he does. And, 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 and so much of it still is mystery, isn't it? And it always will be mystery. There's, there's enough mystery in it. But, but, but there's this call for us to trust him, to trust him without complete understanding. To me, that's one of the key expressions in, in all of the Old Testament. At God's call, was, to, was calling prophets and patriarchs and whoever he called, was to trust him without complete understanding. That's, when you read the Bible, you see that, don't you? But the reason you see that is because you understand it's going to happen to you. He'll call you to trust him over and over and over without complete understanding, with limited understanding, sometimes with no understanding. That's why we read the Bible. That's why we, that's why we teach so that we understand the ways of God. But you must think about this. You have to think about this first day, this walk, these three guys walking for four hours. Let's just say four hours. They walk for four hours, and, and here's, what's, here's what's taking place. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Verse 17, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? Well, we, we know that he knows. And they stood still, looking sad. They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Interesting. Um, no. <laughs> not exactly. Um, but what's happened there in those days? Well, what's happened is it's, it's, it's during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's right over Passover. Thousands of people have showed up in Jerusalem at this time. All kinds of visitors. And, and, and this event was huge. It was a huge event. This, I mean, the Romans were involved in it. All the Jews, the whole Sanhedrin was involved in it. All the people were involved in it. They, they, they go up to this hill called Golgotha, and three of them are crucified and it was something that was spread around because this prophet, he's dead. He, we thought he maybe, well, he's dead. These other two guys are dead, and the Romans and the Jews, and, and it was just all over Jerusalem. And they say, are you the only visitor who doesn't know about these things? And he says, what things? <laughs> this is God at work. He says, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped. Now, I'm just going to camp there for a minute. Because this is where so many of your people are, if you're a teacher, so many of your people are here. They had hoped for something in their relationship with Jesus. They had hoped to go a certain way. They had, they, they, they had hoped that 
a certain set of things would, would actually unfold because they had named it and claimed it, and it didn't happen. And so they had hoped. Maybe it's part of your life. Maybe at this point in your life, you had hoped for something more than what you're presently experiencing. You had hoped for something, and, and, and hope deferred does what? It makes the heart sick, sad, when hope is deferred. But here's the issue. If your hope is in the wrong thing, it's not going to happen. If God really is the Lord of your life and in charge of your life, your hope has to be set on the things that he's projecting, not upon the things that you hope for personally. Now, sometimes those coincide, right? But I had hoped it would happen sooner. We can get there, too, right? I had hoped it was going to happen soon. I had hoped that things would work out better. Wow. This thing exploded in my face. What happened? I just, my, in my last trip to Ohio, I, I visited seven of our churches and came down to one of our churches of, in Columbus, Ohio, and this wonderful preacher, Andy Holt, wonderful guy. He'd been a year into this church plant, and um, he, was the, he won the award at Gordon-Conwell Seminary as the best preacher in the seminary. He was our guy. We're doing this thing. It's, it was going to be great. And he, we sat down with him, and I said, Andy, how's it going? He says, I'm quitting. Uh, give me a little bit more. You know. <laughs> well, his son had uh, contracted epilepsy, and he was perhaps autistic as well. He had three, he had four children. He was in a job that he wasn't making enough money, and... This, and and tw- he started the church with 20 core members and four were left. Now, you sit in my place and what are you going to say to Andy? Huh? What do you say to Andy? Oh, what? But we had hoped. <laughs> Andy had hoped for far more than that. But what I could say to him was this. I said, don't worry. God is at work. I didn't say that right away. But God is at work, and there is something more going. You know what I said to him? I said, Andy, you're called. There's no question in my mind that you're called. This is not a defeat. This is a wise move at this point. The the church has ended. One year, it's ended. And you know what? Okay. It's all right to end a church. But he will retreat to fight another day what so many Civil War generals would do. They understood retreat. Save yourself so you could back up, replenish, and fight another day. And so that's what we were able to say to him. We said, we're with you. You're our guy. You're not, because you've stopped doesn't mean you're not our guy. You're our guy. And I am totally tuned into Andy Holt right now. Because what's at stake for him is the call of God in his life. And he thinks he's a failure. And I'm saying, you are not a failure. This didn't work. There's all kinds of stuff that doesn't work, right? And it doesn't work, and so you move on, but you don't, you're not defined by what didn't work. You're defined by God. You're defined by the calling of God. Not the failures, not the things that blow up in your face. You're defined by God Himself. If He's called you and put His hand upon you, that's your definition 
That's who you are. I'm not primarily a teacher or pastor. I'm primarily a son of God. God has placed his hand on my life. That's my definition because everything I'm doing now can be taken away from me. That can't be taken away from me, being a son of God. So periodically, you may hit places where it looks like everything has gone wrong and it's all broken down. I'm not going to say don't worry. You're going to have to sort through it. But I am saying that God is not surprised. And God is not distant. God is at work in you both to will and to work all the time. Right? Right. I mean, that promises all the time. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good time. Brothers and sisters, that's happening right now. God is active right now. Sometimes you don't feel it, you don't sense it, you don't see it. But it's happening right now. Tony, it's happening right now. But we had hoped. Part of our hoping that leads to depression is that our hope is set in illusions rather than the realities of God. So that, so that we cannot be defined by the things that break down. Okay, let's go back to the story here. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So what were they hoping for? They were hoping that Jesus would be the one who would drive out the Romans, who would actually redefine the Sanhedrin, and would bring in the the kingdom of David again. That that David's reign. Everybody was rooting for David's reign. This is going to happen. And what happened to them? These two guys undoubtedly also saw the crucifixion. They saw their hope hanging on a Roman cross and dying. And everything died with him. So they were going home. But this is challenging. It's challenging because of what they say next. Moreover, verse 22, some of our women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. That's what happened to us. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Now, wait. Really? I have a question. They get a report from really credible women that they saw angels and an empty tomb, and they came back and reported it, and, and they said, we were amazed by that. We were absolutely amazed by a report of angels in an empty tomb. And they said he was alive. And we're going home. Hold it. If any of that is true, stay here. Yeah. What are you doing? Why are they going home? That's my question. If any of that is true, yeah. why are you going home? Because they were overwhelmed by, by some of the, the, uh, of seeing the death. That even the report, even the message of the resurrection, even the message of credible women, even the message of angels and an empty tomb, it wasn't enough. They were going home. Now, here's the other thing you need to see about God. Because... I'm pretty sure if you were in charge of the resurrection, you would have not chosen this route. Right? 
Jesus, first day of the resurrection, he chooses who? Who did he choose? Who? Cleopas and somebody else. These are not the most famous people in the Bible. These are Cleopas, like, I don't know, he's mentioned once, and somebody else. He chooses a couple of nobodies. Is this amazing? I find this deeply encouraging. That on day one of the resurrection, he, he chooses to show himself first. Well, Mary saw him in the garden. But he chooses to spend the bulk of the day with two nobodies. Now, God's telling us something here. God's telling us something. Francis Schaeffer wrote a book called No Little People. No Little People. That, that God enters in to two nobodies who are somebodies. He chooses to spend the first day of the new kingdom of God, the first day of the new humanity, the first day of the resurrection. He chooses to be ours, walking with two nobodies. Does God know who you are? Anybody feel like a nobody here? Oh, he knows who you are. This scripture is telling me that. He's choosing you. He's choosing you to reveal himself. There's no, there's no nobodies. Not, not in the kingdom. There's no nobodies. So he chooses to spend hours incognito with two nobodies. If you've got nothing else out of this, take that home. It'll feed your soul. Because he's still... If he does it once, and if he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, he's doing it again. He's choosing nobodies to reveal himself. He's doing it. Pay attention. And what does he do for four hours? What does he do? This is incredible. Look at it. He said to them in verse 25, Oh, foolish ones. Now, at that point, I would say, Whoa, whoa, who are you calling a fool, you know? But, of course, they were. And, and, and at this point, I'm thinking there's something like a particular grace afoot. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart. Foolishness and slowness of heart. Now, here's what teaching does. The weight of the teaching voice is to bring wisdom and Quickness of heart. The word of God was meant to bring wisdom, the, a right perception of the world according to God, which is what we teach about, right? And quickness. That internal heart issue where I'm able to respond. But it takes, listen to me, it takes a lot of teaching for your heart to become quick to respond. Where you get it, where you see it, where you understand it and you can respond to it. It takes teaching. And Jesus is going to teach them. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe what? To believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. What a Bible study this was. 
holy mackerel. Would you like those tapes? How about the DVDs, you know? I mean, whatever you want, I'm buying them, you know? I mean, would that solve every theological issue that ever happened in the world? Those are the tapes we need. <laughs> we don't have them. What we do have is the Bible. And we have Jesus now, on day one of the resurrection, spending all kinds of time with two nobodies, taking them through the scriptures. And I'm going to take you through the scriptures. I'm going to do some holy guessing here. I know that the passages I'm going to bring to you, I know he brought these up. But there's so many other places in the scriptures that, in the Old Testament, that speak of Jesus. In fact, the whole Old Testament speaks of Jesus. It's understanding how to see him in the Old Testament. But let me just bring you through a couple of them. This will be lots of fun, because, because what I want you to do is get into the heads of Cleopas and the other guy as they listen to Jesus unpack the Old Testament. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Number one. Do you think he got here? After the curse has been given in Genesis 3, here is the first expression of the good news. It's called the Proto-Evangelion, the first expression of the gospel. Because the curse was bad news for everybody. Well, for Adam and Eve at that point. But he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the evil one. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. I like the NIV. The NIV says, he, speaking of Jesus, will crush, speaking to the devil here, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. What would you rather have, a crushed head or a bruised heel? I'm taking the bruised heel. But you know what the bruised heel was? It was scourging and Roman crucifixion. That's the bruised heel. What does a crushed head look like? Compared to that. And this is what you have to get here. That the defeat of the snake, the serpent, the evil one, is so complete. It's so crushed. It's so broken that a crucifixion looks like a bruised heel. This is good news, brothers and sisters. This is good news about the defeat of the enemy, about the defeat of the evil one. And listen now, we're walking with these two guys, and Jesus, because they know this scripture, he brings them right into, can you see the foot on the snake? He brings them right into that, and he says this. Do you know what happened on Friday? Say what happened on Friday. Satan was crushed. Yeah. And these guys go, Whoa. Are you kidding? That verse, they've known it all their lives. And now, Jesus incognito is saying, It happened on Friday. Satan was crushed. Do you think he got to this part? Talking about Abraham, Isaac, 
God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, and bring him up to the mountain and sacrifice him there to me. Abraham obeyed. Because you know why? Because he knows God. Does he understand this? You talk about trust without complete understanding. Here is trust with absolutely no understanding. Take your son, your only son whom you love. I'm guessing Isaac's about eight. He's been waiting his whole life for this son. And God says, I want him. I want him. I want you to sacrifice him. And they take a three-day journey. What do you think those three days were like for Abraham? And then he tells his men to wait, and he puts the wood on his son's shoulder. And Isaac says to him, Behold, Father, we have the wood, we have the fire, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God himself. And they walk up this hill, the son carrying the wood, the father carrying the fire and the knife. And then how do you do this? Binds his son, picks him up, puts him on the altar, takes out the knife. He's going to kill him. But Romans tells us this. You believe this, that even if I kill my son, you will have to bring him back. Because you said, and everything hinges on this. He takes the knife out, and God says, stop. Now I know. They see a ram in the thicket. And he unbinds his son. And they get the ram. And offer the ram. But I'm going to ask, I want you to hear something. What happened to Isaac in all this? What did he understand? As he sees his father taking the knife. He understands, my father loves God more than he loves me, more than he loves life. You see, I think Jesus brings him into this, and he says this, that what God finally did not require of Abraham, he required of himself, that God himself had his own son carry wood up a hill and be impaled on that wood and turned his face away from him. It was God himself who sacrificed his son. You, you understand? And these two men, as they walk, as they walk with Jesus, they hear this. And Jesus said, that's what happened on Friday. That's what went on. God himself offered his son to save us. It happened. The serpent was crushed. The son was sacrificed. And say he's alive. 
If you go to Genesis 28, and Jacob, and, and God's speaking to Jacob, it says, and he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up to earth, and on top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Do you think he went here? He'd already said it to Nathaniel in John 1, hadn't he? He'd already said it to him. He said, that, he said, you think that because I saw you under the fig tree, that's a big deal. I'll tell you what. You're going to see just a bit more than that. You're going to see, you're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending on what? On what? On the Son of Man. What is this ladder to heaven? It's the link between God himself and, and earth. And Jesus becomes that link. He is that ladder. And he's saying to Nathaniel, I'm it. Everything is hinged on me. Brothers and sisters, everything is hinged on Jesus. He is that link between the, the holiness of God and the fatherhood of God and you and the blessing. And it's all covenantal. This is a covenantal scene here of God making covenant with Jacob and saying, listen, I just want to give you this dream so that you know I am totally in tune to where you're at and angels, my messengers will be coming down to you, bringing blessing to you, and I'll be taking every request back up the ladder. I am totally in your life. But in Jesus, it's even deeper. He is the link. Now, he says it to these two guys. And they're thinking, I mean, every thought they had about that scene before is gone. And they say, it's true. It's true. This is all real. It's all true. Their, their head is exploding. Their hearts are going bonkers. What about this? Jacob wrestling with the angel. Who's the angel? It's a theophany of Jesus, isn't it? It's not. It's not an angel. It's more than an angel here. We have a theophany. You know what a theophany is? It's a physical presentation of the pre-incarnate Jesus showing up. We're going to see a couple of them here. But what's the point here? Do you think he talked about this? Oh, I think he did. I think he did. Because here's the reality that's going to happen for every one of us. If it hasn't happened to you yet, it will happen. That you will have to wrestle with Jesus himself and his word until you submit and he causes you to limp. Anybody up for a limp? Oh, yeah. Oh, you are. You're probably limping already. And the limp is this, that you never forget that everything in your life is rooted to him. The limp for Jacob was every step he took, it's about him. It's about him. It's about him. And sometimes that's exactly what we need. Do you, you think that there ever will come a time where God will allow suffering to come into your life. Yes, it will come. Read the Bible. Suffering is crucial for your development to be conformed to the image of Jesus. All kinds of suffering, not, not necessarily a crucifixion in your life, but, I mean, there's all kinds of ways to suffer, isn't there? Have you found that out yet? There's all kinds of ways to suffer. Get married. <laughs> No, no, I'm serious. Have kids. Have a job. Have hopes. 
you know, I, I would say this about my relationship. I've been married for 41 years. It's been remarkable. We've also been the prime resource of suffering into each other's life. I, I do merit seminars, too. <laughs> no, no, do you understand? That, that <laughs> but there's a reality that goes on that, that when, you, when you try to live out one life together with another human being, they just don't get it. They're so selfish, aren't they? <laughs> but in fact, both of us would say this, that it's each other's lives that have brought the most healing into our lives. It's wonderful. I mean, I am delirious, honestly, with joy. Not all the time. Sometimes she just doesn't do what I think she ought to do. And um, then I'm sad. I had, I had hoped. <laughs> but Jacob wrestles with this angel because periodically, periodically you need to be wrestled down. You're so full of yourself, aren't you? Do this. Yes, I am totally full of myself. Okay? So we have to be wrestled down by Jesus himself, who basically does it mercifully in our lives because we can't go on without having been wrestled down and kind of get it straight again. This has happened, I don't know how many times, multiple times in my life where I get so full of myself that I, I charge ahead and, 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 I, and I hit this brick wall and I start smashing the brick wall and my hands are all bloody and he finally wrestles me and I says, you want to stop that? You know, Can we talk? You know, as he's got me in a headlock. Can we talk? I guess. <laughs> right? He'll wrestle you down. What about this? Do you think he got here? Because he gets here and for, for every year of Cleopas and the other guy's life, this has meant the release from, from Egypt. That's what it's meant. But, but now he says this, something like this. He says, he says, you know that lamb? You know that blood? You know, that the, you know why God passed over and didn't destroy? Because blood was put over the doorposts. And God, yeah, we, we know that. He said, you know what happened Friday? That blood is an eternal blood that's put over your heart so that death passes over you, so that you are alive in God. So there, but think about it. This is the biggest feast of the Jews, and they're thinking, no, yes, no, yes. Could it be? Could it be that God himself provided a lamb whose blood causes God to to embrace, to pass over, to bring life. This is how my, my, my first daughter became a Christian. She was four years old. We were reading the Kenneth Taylor book about the Passover. We read about the Passover, and then and Kenneth Taylor had questions at the end. And it said, you know, the, one of the questions was, is the blood of Christ on the doorpost of your heart? And Renee looked at me and she said, Daddy, is the blood of Jesus on the doorpost of my heart? And I said, do you want it to be? She said, yes. I was like, are you kidding? And I said, let's pray. And she did, and that blood 
on her heart so that death passes over her heart. Suffering, she has. Difficulty, yes. Death, no. No, no death. Life. Life is in that blood. She's covenantally, at four years old, she was covenantally connected to Jesus. It still remains the highest moment of my pastoral life to lead her to Jesus that way through the Passover. Think about it. This is, this is just blowing their minds at this point. We're maybe, I don't know, maybe an hour into the walk, and these guys are entranced, right? They're entranced because he's taking every scripture and unpacking it relative to what happened Friday. They had hoped that he would redeem Israel in an illusion, and now they're seeing the real hope that's going on here. What about Leviticus? And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head. This is the scapegoat on the live goat. Listen, I love this. But this picture doesn't really get it right. Because really what it should be is Aaron with his hands on the scapegoat and thousands of people in back of him saying their sins, repeating their sins, and saying them so that and you'd hear this huge hubbub in back of him as he's holding his hands on the, and all these sins going through the, the high priest onto the goat. It took hours. And Aaron stands there, and that poor goat, with his, <laughs> and all these sins of the people are being transferred through the high priest, and the high priest would say his sins, and after hours of repetition, they would take the goat out into the wilderness. I have a question. What is the life expectancy of that goat out in the wilderness? Minutes. It's minutes. Because that is a completely vulnerable animal with all kinds. I mean, there's all kinds of predators out there saying, wow, here comes lunch. Can you believe this? It was was minutes. Because you would let that goat go and then get away quick. Because those animals would be coming out to literally destroy that carcass. And here's what Jesus says to those two guys. All the sins of mankind were in that body Friday. And he became the scapegoat. He's the scapegoat. And the high priest at the same time. God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel is being unpacked over and over as they walk on this road from Numbers 21.9. He says it to Nicodemus, doesn't he? He's repeated this to Nicodemus. So what's happening here in Numbers 21? The people of Israel have rebelled. God sends snakes. They get bitten by the snakes. They start to die. And they say, how do we solve this? And God says, make a pole and make a bronze serpent and put it up on the pole. And then tell people this. If you've been bitten by a snake and the poison's in your veins and you're dying, if you want to get well, go outside and look at the pole. How ridiculous is that? How foolish Is that? Come on. You have poison in your veins and you're going to get better? 
by looking at a pole with a bronze snake? This is going to do it? It did it. How foolish is the gospel? It's incredibly foolish. Paul said it. Our gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. Why? Because here, here's the weight of the gospel. This is how I got saved. I looked at Jesus and said, if you want this mess, you can have it. And, and I looked at the guy I was praying with. I said, is that, a, is that okay? And he said, yeah, that'll do. Pig. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. He said, that'll do. Now, now, now here's what happened. I... I, I wasn't looking at the brown snake on the pole, but I looked at Jesus, I believed in Jesus, and I got saved. I was saved by looking away at the place where God had designated he was going to be. I got saved. Power came into my life and changed me. What is that? That's the good news. I am delivered from me, by looking away from me to a savior on a tree, dying for me on a tree. The next day, I had a revelation. I was so, I remember the first day after, it was a Sunday night, Monday morning, this is literally true, I was lying in bed, I didn't open my eyes, and I said this. I said, Jesus, are you still there? And I heard a rather clear yes in my heart. And I thought, it's real. This is all real. It's real. And and, and in my joy, I'll never forget this moment, I went out, I was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, I went out and I walked across the street to a bar and it was like the bar was filled with the glory of God. And I bought a pack of cigarettes and and I was smoking these cigarettes and they never taste so good. You're going, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I'm not advocating cigarettes, but I mean, even at that moment, I mean, everything was glorious. <laughs> cigarettes and bars and... And I was walking down, I was walking down 15th Street in Milwaukee, and I had three revelations. The first one is this, right in a row. One, God knew me. That was so stunning to me, it still is. God knows me. Number two, he doesn't want to kill me. Because if I knew me as God, I would want to just simply exterminate me. I was such an idiot. He knows me. He doesn't want to kill me. He must have a plan for my life in the future. He did. He does. He always will. He knows exactly. Listen to me, please. I don't know what kind of we had hoped situation you might be in right now, but God is not nervous about where you're at and where he wants to get you. He is not nervous. He thinks he's God. He thinks he's God. And you are in the covenant. He will never stop knowing you and paying attention to where he wants to get you. He'll get you there. Stay with him. 
Will there be difficulty? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's part of the deal. Difficulty, it's part of the deal. Don't worry about that. Stay tuned. I, I love this, though. Look at this. I mean, if you were bitten by a snake and you had poison in your veins and that was the remedy, I'd say, well, what else you got, really? You know, it just makes no sense to go look at something, but it's the gospel. And so Jesus is saying to these guys that he became sin. He was the serpent on the pole. If you look at him. When they're going into Jericho, Joshua sees this guy. I love this, don't you? And, and, and he's, you know, Joshua's cranked now. He's the guy. You know, Moses is gone. I love that. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, Joshua. It's like, whoa, what about Moses? He's dead. Yeah. So, Joshua, you're the guy now. And, um, and, and, and he's cranked, and they've done everything right. They've done all the stuff, crossing the river and the, the rocks and circumcision and Passover. They did it all. And he's feeling manly and in charge. And I got this thing. I can do this thing. Here's what he gets. And Joshua was by Jericho. He lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us? Or for our adversaries? And the response of the Lord is, No. And that was not the question, right? Are you for us or for our adversaries? No. I'm in charge. As commander of the armies of the Lord, I have now come. Joshua gets it. He says, ah, what do you want me to do? You take off your shoes. Okay. Listen, if this has not come to you yet, it's got to come to you and it's got to happen regularly. You own nothing. Jim Olson owns nothing here. He doesn't own any people. He doesn't own his ministry. He doesn't own his future. He owns nothing. His only hope is to take off his shoes before this commander and say, what do you want me to do? Oh, and he'll tell him. But it's not going to work. It will not work. If you think you're the guy and you're in charge and you're going to, it won't work. He will have to confront you and say, well, come on. You didn't die for these people, did you? Did you? And if you did, your blood would have been effective. I died. It's my blood. It's my covenant. It's my power. It's my reality. Now take off your shoes and worship. Get it right. Get this right. And what he says to these guys is, that was, that was a picture of Jesus happening right there. Psalm 110. No, the, the, the rabbis could not figure this one out. The Lord says to my Lord, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean the Lord says to my Lord? Who's the Lord here? Yeah, we're getting into some Trinitarian stuff here, aren't we? And he says to him, he says to these two guys, I think they got here that he's going to go to the right hand and he's going to be in charge of everything 
buckle your seatbelt, hold on, that's going to happen. I, I, we could spend the rest of the week talking about Isaiah 53. But he bore our sins. <clears throat> so again, when, and, and, and of course in this one, again, the rabbis, they, they had all kinds of trouble with this. But it says in Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The father crushing the son. It was his will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Do you believe that? Does that stun you? And I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin on the cross. This is this ends up being the pinnacle. Isaiah 53 becomes this explicit unfolding of the realities of our salvation. We'll never get it. That's why communion is so crucial. Right. Thanks for doing that, my friend. That's great service out there. But I but but I hold that bread, and, and, I, and I, I have to work at this, but I hold that bread and I drink that cup because they're real. Aren't they real? It's, it's real bread. It's real wine or grape juice. It's real. I taste it, and what I understand is this. It was all real. It was a real body. It was real blood. It was all real, and it had to be real of the incarnate Son of God, the second Adam, who redeems us from the curse. It was all real. It's always going to be real. And it was that reality that saves me and saves you. So what happens? I'm almost done here. What happens is this. So they drew, verse 28, they drew near to the village to which they were going. And by the way, I just gave you a couple of the places where Jesus probably went. There were probably dozens more where he was just blowing their brains out with the reality of the truth. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going farther. Hold it. Wait a minute. What's the deal? He acted as if he were going farther. Now, is there something to learn here? I think so. Why did he do that? Huh? Pardon? He had more to tell, but why did he act as if he was going farther? Because I mean, it's, it's, God does nothing kind of you know, along the way. I don't know. I think he'll just go farther. He's trying to tell us something, and I think it's this. Here's my best guess. That as he moves on, he wanted them to say, come. He wanted that dynamic to say, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you've got. But stay with me because everything you're saying is breaking into my soul. And it's my soul that needs to be fed. Please, we need more. We need more. And he comes in. He's prevailed upon. He is always ready to be prevailed upon. He comes in, and it's, it's a stunning scene. 
He comes in, and the table's set. The bread is there, and he does something you should never do in a Jewish household. If you're in a Jewish household, it's the head of the house who touches the bread first. You never break this rule. It's the owner of the house. Jesus comes in, and he takes the bread. Who does he think he is? We don't even know your name. He comes in, and he takes the bread, breaks it, and they get it, and he vanishes. Why? Why incognito? Why hidden? Why? Why didn't just let him know who it is? It'd just be so much easier, right? No. There's a purpose, and here's the purpose, I think, is this. He's going to leave. And their faith has got to be in the word of God. Their faith has got to be in the revelation of God's word, not in the physical presence of Jesus being there. So incognito, what he does is he opens the word of God to them, causes them to leap up to it, and he's gonna, he wants to say this. For the rest of your life, I'm not going to be here physically, but I will be in that book. I will be in that word. I loved it when Steve was holding up the Bible saying, you've got a miracle in your hand? Oh, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. And that's why we need to teach this. We need to teach it in such a way that hearts are burning. And so and that's what they say. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up the scriptures? Here's the weight of the teaching voice, that we teach it as best we can and open it up and show Jesus as best we can so that the hearts of the people that you're preaching to burn within them. That's what we have to go for, that hearts burn because we've opened the word of God to them, because the same Jesus who walked on that road incognito will be walking through the pews of your church doing the same thing. Even if you preach it not so great, if you open that word, he will be there, and he'll cause hearts to burn. He'll cause hearts to leap up. He'll open eyes, and he'll actually heal and do things that you can't do. Our job is to open the word of God in such a way as best we can, to rightly divide it in a way that people get it. He vanishes, and he ends up in Jerusalem. So these guys end up, now they're in Emmaus, they're seven miles away, right? <laughs> they ran back to Jerusalem. How long did that take them? I'm thinking less than an hour, you know. Uh, it's like, they are, they are, they're cranked, right? And uh, they're, they're not thinking about whoa, this is a long run. They're thinking, we've got to get back there. We've got to tell people. We've got to show them. They get back there. They rush in. And who shows up? But Jesus. And what's he doing? What does he do when he shows up? This is now back in Jerusalem. Then he, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and the third day rise from the dead. Now think about this. I'm almost done. Think about this. We have a whole day here. Jesus has risen from the dead early in the morning, and now we're into the evening, and all he's done 
is open the scriptures all day long. That's what he's done. He's opened and rooted them in the scriptures and opened it up to them so they could understand it because that's where we have to live. With his spirit, with his word, with his people, we have to hear. We are a people of the word, a people who are shaped by the word, a people who live by the word of God. That's who we are. That's who we are. And he, he opens it up to them, and they get it. Now, I just want to pray for you. I w- I'd like every preacher to stand up who preaches the word of God on a regular basis. Do you know who you are? Do you know what you've been called to? This is the most significant thing happening in the world today, that God's word is being proclaimed. And I want to tell you this, that this same Jesus who walked on this road with those two nobodies is totally tuned in to you. And wants you to tremble just a little bit. Wants you to understand the weight of what you do enough so you do not ever take it casually again. But you, when you open that word, you are opening what belongs to God, where his own investment is in it. I want you to tremble. And I want you to rejoice that he's chosen you and he will not leave you alone until he brings that out of you. You can count on him to actually unpack within your soul what needs to happen for the people that you're caring for. So if you just open your hands and and receive from this same Jesus right now, receive this. Father in heaven, you see my brothers and sisters right now. They handle your word. They handle your word. Cause them to properly tremble. Cause them to tremble in their heart at what we handle. And then give them grace to deeply rejoice in the reality that you will be with them both in the study of their word and in the proclaiming of your word that you are with them. This is your work. Jesus, all of it belongs to you. Now help them. Help help me, oh God. Help us as as we do these things. As we do these things that are of eternal import every Sunday or every, every time we proclaim this word, give us grace to handle it well. And I'd like everyone else to stand up. And Father, for all of us, for those who hear the word of God and those who proclaim it in other, other facets, I pray, Father, that you would give them the same reality that you gave Cleopas and the other guy the same reality that you will open that word to them as they study and as they look. Give them hearts, please God. Give them hearts to pursue you in your word, to hear you. Talk to them. 
open the Scriptures like you opened it 2,000 years ago. Keep opening it to us, Lord. If you don't open it to us, we'll do stupid things with it. God, help us that, that, that your Word would burn within us, that your Word would burn within our hearts so that, so that we can proclaim it as we should and as we, as we ought to. Come and help us, Lord Jesus. This all belongs to you. Everything we touch is not ours. It's yours. And we rejoice both in the trembling and in the rejoicing. God, keep us on a straight path. Open your word to us and help us to be proclaimers of the truth and the beauty and the glory of God, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. I don't know about you, but my heart's burning. Let's just respond for a few moments here. Worship and adoration. Thanks. If you want to come, there's plenty of space here. If you just want to physically move or it helps you, just step out, kneel, whatever you need, whatever.